Welcome, everyone. I am Christopher, and this is Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain media. It's just me this month. I've been revamping and moving our website around all month, so I have a little time to put together a regular episode. To be honest, I simply forgot to pick a topic. So regular listeners know that when that happens, you get some old-time radio programs. I'm going to take a brief break, and when I return, wait a minute, have you heard The Whistler? The Journey Into podcast features replays of old radio shows like X-1, Escape, Suspense, Lights Out, and many more. Also, about once a month, I sure am trying, it will also feature full cast readings of new and classic stories, as well as new flash fiction. Think of it as a variety pack of audio fiction. It's a happy meal for your ears, or if you don't like happy meals... It's like the toy chest you used to dive into when you went to the dentist as a kid. Come check it out at journeyintopodcast.blogspot.com So, come with me, and let's journey into space. Or into adventure. Or into fear. Into mystery. Or into the unknown. Alright, welcome back. The Whistler is a program that aired on the west coast of the United States from 1942 to 1955 on the local CBS radio networks. It did also air in Chicago and over Armed Services Radio as well. An attempt to bring it over to the east coast in the mid-40s didn't quite catch on. The program begins each story with a haunting tune composed by Wilbur Hatch and a mysterious whistle, which is provided by Dorothy Roberts. A character known only as The Whistler was the host and narrator of the tales, which focused on crime and fate. The Whistler often commented directly upon the events in the story from the perspective of an unseen but all-knowing observer. The stories all followed a person's criminal acts that in the end were undone either by an overlooked detail or by simple stupidity. An often grim and always ironic ending was a feature of each episode, and every once in a while the protagonist actually wins out. I'm going to give you three episodes to chew on this month first is the premiere episode, which aired May 16, 1942, entitled Retribution. It follows John Hendricks, who has murdered his wife and stepson in an attempt to steal thousands of dollars. He ends up escaping jail and returns to search for the money, only to have a series of bizarre events unfold in an unusual house. Wait a minute. Have you heard the whistler? That was John Hendricks. He waited. Waited for a chance to sell his soul to the devil. Money is not enough, John. Money is not enough. We want you, John. We want you. That was his wife, Martha. The former widow, Martha. (laughs) Yes, Martha. Yes. And her simple-minded son, Henry. Go ahead, son. Go ahead, we must have John Henry. Yes, mother. Yes, mother. Yes, mother. Tonight, CBS presents a new mystery series, The Whistler. And 
And I, the whistler, know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales, many secrets hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And so I tell you tonight the strange story of retribution. Gaze up this muddy, rain-splattered road. A small, lonely stone building appears against the lightning-streaked sky. The dismal courthouse of a southern village. The village of Marsdenburg. It is nearly midnight. A trial is in progress. A murder trial. John Hendricks is on trial for his life. <laughs> the state versus Hendricks. Killed his wife and stepson. He killed his wife and her simple-minded son, Henry... For the 10000 in cash she kept in her big house on the outskirts of town. Open the door. There he stands, John Hendricks, a huge, silent man of 50. Large, bony hands. Close the door. Well, what do you think? Does he look like a murderer? The prosecutor is closing his argument. Ladies and gentlemen Listen. of the jury, it has been proven that Mrs. Hendricks had no current bank account. It has been proven that she did have a large sum of money which she kept on her estate. John Hendricks knew this money and attempted to steal it, was caught in the act, and killed them both in order to cover up the theft. It was not a tramp who killed that old gray-haired lady and her simple son. There was only one intruder, one thief, one murderer. And there he sits, ladies and gentlemen. There he sits in all his guilt. A vicious killer, a murderer. There is only one decision for you to make. There is only one penalty that can erase from this countryside the stigma of this fiendish crime. One penalty for this axe murderer, John Hendricks. And that penalty is death. State rests. <laughs> Have you reached a verdict? Have you reached a verdict? <laughs> Your Honor, we, uh, we, the jury, due to lack of more complete evidence, find the defendant guilty of murder in the second degree. Second degree. Cheated death. You get life. Surprise? Of course you are. But it had to be. <laughs> yes, it had to be. I know. John Hendricks, stand up. Yes, John, stand up. Face the court. Watch him now. He's on the street. John Hendricks, I wish to state that I am not in accord with the findings of this jury. However, there's nothing for me to do but sentence you to the state penitentiary for the remainder of your natural life. <laughs> Where you are now? Recognize that huge, sprawling stone structure with the high walls around it? State penitentiary. How much later? Ten years. John Hendricks is in there. He has a number now. It is 1013. Let's go through the gates. <laughs> Up the steps. Down the corridor. Here we are in cell block two. Night again. Just turn me in. Oh, 
This has been going on for ten years for John Hendricks, 1013, and his cellmate Bill, 1014. Bill, 1014, is a gangster, or Robin was. But he's changed during five years he's been here. Bill has decided to go straight if he ever gets out, which is very doubtful. But he holds no resentment, has become more or less happy. Bill started reading here, philosophy and so forth. He's changed. But what about John Hendricks? Oh, no. Not Hendricks. Because he has a plan. He has a purpose. Move closer to the cell door and listen. All I got to say, Bill, is I think you're crazy enough to make the try with me. That's a matter of opinion, John. But it'll be simple. I got everything all set. It's all fixed. Not a chance of a slip up. All fixed? Who will? Well, a friend of mine. Oh, I see. Crooked guard. No, he ain't a guard. Don't tell me you got it fixed with a warden. What difference does it make who it is so long as the whole thing is set and fixed? Well, you've got to have some help, inside or out. Oh, I think you're nuts. Stir crazy. I'm getting out of this place. I got a reason, a good reason. I got something waiting for me outside, something I can enjoy, something that belongs to me. I'm the only one that knows where it is, and I'm going out. You're in here for a good long time, brother, and if you don't want to go with me, you can stay and rot. Look, Hendricks, I still think you're nuts. All right, what of it? I got the right doping, eh? And it'll work. Suppose it does. Suppose you find this money hidden away on the old lady's estate. What good will it do you? You killed her and her son to get it. That's a lie. I didn't. Didn't kill anybody. I say you did. It ain't true. Not a word of it. But I know where the money is. Okay, you can break out. You can have the money, but... Well, I've done a lot of reading and thinking since I've been here. Ah, you've gone soft. Maybe so. But I know this much now. If I ever do get out, I'll do things a lot different. But believe me, Hendricks, I'll tread the straight now. I've done a lot of things that I'm sure sorry for now. I... I can't undo them, but I won't do them again. No, sir, I'll do things different. Not the way I did them before. Ah, you're just a religion, but it won't get you out. Maybe not, but I'm resigned. I got exactly what's coming to me. And believe me, Hendricks, so will you. So will you. If you break out, they'll have you back one way or another. You watch and see. Well, I'm going, so you watch and see. Watch and see. Now, another storm. Another night, a lonely country road, a car. We're in the south. That village we passed a few miles back, that silent, sleeping village was Marsdenburg. Yes, Marsdenburg, remember? That small, lonely stone building was the courthouse. The courthouse where John Hendricks was tried and convicted. We're on the outskirts now, on a lonely road. A young man is driving the old car, and there's a girl beside him. Motor trouble? Well, there, just ahead of light. Yes, it's a little crossroads store. Please. There's a light, but I don't see anybody. Oh, it's closed. We'd better drive on. I guess you're right. Good hey. evening, folks. Well, uh, what's your trouble? Oh, we're having motor trouble. Oh, is it? Hmm. What are you doing, uh, driving around on a night like this? On our way west. Mister, is there an inn or something around here where we can stay for the night? An inn? Uh, yes, there's a place about uh, eight miles up the road. They'll probably put you up. Yeah, there's a sign on the left-hand side of the road. Can't miss it. This road's pretty bad when it rains. Gotta be careful or you'll 
Find yourself walking. Thanks. We'll try. Good night. Good luck, mister. You'll need the luck. Increasing now. The muddy road sparkles in the flashes of lightning. The tall, dark trees sway back and forth in the fury of the storm like moaning lost souls. The little car lurches and bounces in its fight to keep the center of the highway. Two miles, three miles, four, maybe five, and look, there it is, straight ahead. On the right side of the road, a blue light. Ah, yes, that's it. Wait, George. Did the old man say on the right side or the left side of the road? George, what's wrong? I don't know. The distributor must have gotten wet. Look, George. What? That blue light we saw, it's gone. Where is it? We must have passed it. Well, we couldn't have. I was looking right at it. It seemed as though it just disappeared in the thin air. I'd better turn in here. This motor won't last much longer. Just so. I can't see a thing. No, it's... Can you? It's certainly a desolate-looking place. There must be a house back in there. There it is. Look, there's a driveway. Twenty feet ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, this motor's about to conk out. We'd better drive in and see what we can find. Yes. Drive in, George. You'll find something. That's right. Through the gate. Make the curve. All right. There goes your motor. A little more. Now. Oh, we just made it. Thank heaven. Yes, that's right. Always thank heaven at a time like this. All right. Get out and go up on the porch. Now let me help you. I'm all right. What do we do with the bag? We'll leave them here in the car till we find out if there's anyone here. Come on. Thing. Gee, this place looks completely deserted. I don't think anyone lives here. I don't either. Let's go. You're listening to The Whistler. We pause momentarily for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Don't knock. I don't like this place. Let's go on. How with a dead motor? Where could we go? I'll knock. Well, all right. Ah, that's right. Knock, George. Knock. Go ahead. Louder. Again. We've got to have shelter. Yes, we. We can't stay in that car any longer. Can we? No. Right not. Here it comes. Now you're on your own, George. On your own. There is someone. Yes? Oh. Uh, good uh, evening. What is it? Well, I, uh, you see... Uh, our car... Uh, yes, our, our, our car stalled. And, and we can't we... go any farther, and it's such a terrible night out that we thought we could stop here for the evening. 
stopped here. Why, yes, we we saw your light and... Light? What light? Why, why the little neon out in front. There is no light. Well, have you a room? Yes, there is a room. Well, uh, could we come in? I mean, it's awfully wet out here. You may come in, if you wish. Oh, thank you. Well, this is quite a relief. We were afraid you'd close up for the night, especially when all the lights were out. Are the lights out? Yes, you see. Huh? Of course the lights are out. Oh, I didn't know. You do take tourists. Do we? Oh, yes, that's what they told us. Who told you? Well, the man, the old man at the little store back at the crossroads. Little store? Yes, at the crossroads about five miles back. You know where the crossroad is, don't you? There is no store at the crossroad. There isn't? No. Let's see. Uh, look, madam, would you mind turning on the lights? I can't see a thing. We have no lights here. No lights? Uh, give me a flashlight, General. She means there's no electricity. No. There is no light here. Well, throw the flash around. There, there must be a lamp. No. Don't make a light. We see well in the dark. We? Who's we? Is there someone else in the house? My son. Oh, he's going to bed? No. He is standing beside you. Beside who? You. Son. Yes, Mother. Oh! Gee, give me that flashlight. I've got it. You've got it. Oh, yeah. How long have you been standing there, Bub? <laughs> Since you came in. That's so. Well, I didn't see you. You make a noise like a spook. Who are you? What is your name? Uh, George Kimball. This is my wife, Joan. We're on our way west with travelers. Travelers? So are we. What? Quiet, son. Quiet. No, let him talk. He's quiet enough. Um, how long have you folks been living here? We lived here all our lives. How about closing the door? Is the door open? Why, of course it's... What? George! Now, take it easy, Joan. Don't get excited. Oh, look, madam, there's a candle on that table over there by the fireplace. Is there? Yes, and uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to light it. Please don't. Oh, wait a minute. If you want us to stay here, we insist that we have some light. You want us to stay here, don't you? Do we? Do we, son? <laughs> yes, mother. What are you looking at me for? Yes, mother. Without light? Yes, mother. George, let's go. I don't want to stay here tonight. This place doesn't look good to me. There has been no good here for many years. You see what I mean, George? Oh, I don't get it. You don't seem to want us yet. Your son does. How do you make any money that way? We don't make money. You don't? You mean you haven't had any guests lately? No, not for many years. Well, you can't expect any if you act like this. But we do expect a guest. Don't we, sir? <laughs> Yes, Mother. Well, he certainly has a surprise coming. Yes, he has. <laughs> How many rooms have you? There are many rooms, but only one. Only one? That doesn't make sense. What do you mean? Only one for guests. You mean only one equipped? Yes. Well, then if you've got a reserve for this guest you expect, what are we going to do? There is an inn farther along the road. They have rooms. They will take care of you. It will be best for us. Our distributor got wet, so our car won't run. Where is your car? Right there at the foot of the steps. I see no car. You don't? 
Why, it's standing right. George. George, where is it? It's gone. Holy smoke, it is gone. But where? How? I didn't hear a sound. It must have rolled ahead. Throw your light around. Not a sign of it. Say, what goes on here? Son. Yes, Mother. You move the car. (laughs) Yes, Mother. I understand, son. I understand. Wait a minute. Your son moved it? How could he? The motor won't even run. And even if it would, we didn't hear a sound. No sound. How did you move it? I... I don't know. That's a fine thing. Here we are in a place where they don't want us in the way of leaving. Well, you've got us on your hands now. You'll have to make the best of it. No, George, no. We'll leave. Nonsense. This is all silly. Come on, let's have some light and cut out the monkey business. Wait. Um... What have we decided? Yes, Mother. We decided yes. Very well. <laughs> if you wish. If you wish, you may stay. Stay until... Until when? All night? <laughs> yes, Mother. If you wish. Oh, that's better. That's more like it. Now I'll light this candle. There we are. George! Look! Well, Look at the dust and the cobwebs. This place looks deserted. Like an old cellar. Well, uh, how about the room? Do we get it, or are the guests are expecting it? There is another room that will do, perhaps. Well, uh, could we see it? Yes. Uh, and by the way, how much do you charge? We charge nothing. You charge nothing? Nothing. Sounds silly, but it's a break for us. We're running short anyway. Well, let's see the room. Very well. It is upstairs. Uh, after you, ma'am. No. You go first. Very well. Come on, Joe. Bring that other candle. Come, son. Follow me. <laughs> yes, well, Mr. I never saw so much dust. Well, they must like it. You know, nice clean dust. <laughs> that room at the head of the stairs. Why? This room is well furnished. Is this the room reserved for your expected guest? No. But you said you had only one room furnished. Who sleeps here? I stay here now. I see. Or do I? It's a nice, soft bed. It was always comfortable. We'll leave you now. Come, son. We must leave them alone now. Yes, Mother. Leave them alone. Good night. Good night. You will lock your door. Huh? Oh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll lock it. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Sonny, did she say good night or goodbye? I don't know. I thought she said... She did say goodbye. Golly, what a screwy outfit. I wish we hadn't had car trouble. That's what we get for trying to drive in the storm. How much money have we left? Not much. Just enough to get to Los Angeles the way I figure. Once I get there, I know there'll be a job for me. We'll make it, don't worry. You'll see me in a nice job in Hollywood. I'm not worried about seeing you in Hollywood. No? No. I'm just worried about seeing you in the morning. The same night, but later. It's midnight. Another car on the same road. You know who it is. It's John Hendricks. You know where he's going. He turns in at our deserted mansion, up the driveway, and stops. He steps out. 
slips up the steps, opens the door, and throws his flash about the dusty room. Cobwebs glisten in the beam. A few moments, and the light comes to rest on the fireplace. He steps quickly to the mantel, draws a small hammer and chisel from his pocket, and sets to work removing a brick. Ah, now he's finished. The brick is loose. He reaches in and withdraws a heavy yellow envelope. He starts to put it in his pocket, but suddenly freezes in his tracks. He can't move. He turns icy cold. Turn around, Hendricks. Turn around. Look. At the foot of the stairs, across the room, stands a woman holding a candle. And beside her, a grinning youth holding an axe. Turn around, Hendricks. Look at their heads, covered with blood. Turn around. John Hendricks murder. John Hendricks thief. Yes, John. No, no. We've come for you, John, the same way you came for us. We've been waiting for you, John. We knew you'd come back for the money. We've been waiting. We've come to take you, John. No, no. Please don't come near me. Please. You must suffer, John, as we have suffered. I've suffered. I've suffered. Not enough, John. Not enough. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't plan to kill you. I went mad. Lost my head. No, no. Don't come near me. You can have the money. You can have it. Then give it to us, John. Give us the money. You won't need it now. Come, son. We must have the money and we must take John. Come, son. Come. No. No. There. There's the money on the floor. Money is not enough, John. Money is not enough. Go ahead, son. Go ahead. We must have John Hendricks, thief, murderer. Yes, mother. Yes, mother. Yes, mother. No, no, no. no. I'll shoot. I'll shoot. Bullets won't stop us. Good Lord, George. I'm bad. I heard a scream. Downstairs. So did I. And shot. I'll open the door. It must have been Downstairs. I don't see a thing. Here's your flashlight. Great Scott. Look. A man down there on the floor. Come on. Oh. He's dead. Look at the gun. It's been fired. But I don't see a mark on him. Let's get out of here. I'll say, come on. No, you don't. Time for your... George! Cops. What's going on here? Hand over that gun. Thanks. What are you doing here? Why, well, we're... Uh, we're stopping here. That is... We're just leaving. I can see that... Know this man on the floor? Know him? Uh, the, yes, yes. Joan, yes. what's the matter with you? No, no, no. We don't. We don't. We, Take we a don't look at Frank. Yes, sir. What are you two doing here? Why, we, oh, we're guests. Yes, we're both guests. Guests? Who's guests? Why, guests, lodgers, tourists, guests of the old lady. What old lady? The old lady that lives here. The old lady and her son. Huh. You'll have to cook up a better one than that. What do you mean? Drive here. Where's your car? The son took it. Son, old lady, what are you talking about? They live here. They said they own this place. We had motor trouble, and they put us up for the night. What about him, Frank? Well, he isn't dead, breathing. Looks like he had a stroke or something. Tim, all right. John Hendricks. Take a look around. See if there's anyone else here. Yes, sir. What's your name? George Kimball. This is my wife. We're on our way to California. Do you know who this man is? Certainly. We've been on his trail. He's an escaped convict. This your gun? No, sir. Did he shoot at you? No, sir. You shoot at him? This gun's been fired, and we heard shots as we turned in the driveway. Not a sight of anyone, sir. Nothing but dust and cobwebs. Look, Campbell, you said there was an old lady and her son here. Sure, they were here all evening. They're not here now. Well, they let us in and showed us to our room. They certainly were here. Uh, what did the old lady look like? Well, she had gray hair, wore a house dress and an apron. What did the boy look like? He was a big kid. 
Or 20. Had a round, rosy face, and I think... Well, in fact, I know he was kind of simple-minded. He had a strange laugh. And he he had red hair. Well, I'll be darned. What do you think of that, Frank? Golly, isn't me the creeps. Why so? Do you know who you've just described? No. The old lady and her son who used to live here. Used to live here? Yeah. They were murdered here. Ten years ago. What? Murdered? Sure. This man on the floor was her husband. The boy's stepfather. He was tried for killing them with an axe and stealing her money and bonds. He got off at second degree because of lack of evidence. He escaped a week ago and headed this way. He's been on his trail ever since he entered this county. So you see, Kimball, if there was anybody else here tonight, it must have been a figment of your imagination. This house has been deserted for ten years. Oh. Oh, George. Good Lord. Look, Sergeant. Found this envelope on the back doorstep. It's the money. Well, what do you know? The money and the bonds. Old Martha Hendricks' money. That's why Hendricks came here. But, but, but where did they go? The old lady. No place. Because they weren't here, Kimball. Well, better we get them out of here and back to headquarters. Oh, wait a minute. Don't leave us. We won't. You're coming along, too. Why? We need you for a day or two. All right, let's get going, Frank. Come on. But, but where, where did they go? We saw them. I know they were here. Well, you certainly described them to a T, but don't worry too much about it, you know. Things like this can drive you nuts. You know what I mean? Things like this, well... Things like this sometimes just... just happen, you know what I mean? No. Well, oh, come on, let's go before I get the heebie-jeebies. What did he say? Things like this just sometimes happen. Just happen. Well, sometimes they do and can't be explained. <laughs> but not this time. Oh, no, not this time. This can be explained. Remember John Hendrick's cellmate, Bill? Bill number 1014? He can explain. He knows all about it. Because he planned it. Bill wanted the money. He'd learned all the dope from Hendricks. He sent his pals, the phony spooks, made up like the old lady and her son, to grab the money when Hendricks recovered it. Too bad they dropped it in their hurry to get away. Bill didn't want to hurt John. He wanted to scare him out of it. Remember? Bill, 1014, had changed. He said he'd never do things the way he'd done them before. And he didn't. Bill meant what he said. <laughs> Good night. this came upon you unaware and you listened, we've served our purpose. The Whistler, with original music composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch, is written and directed by J. Donald Wilson and originates from Columbia Square in Hollywood. Next week, same time, The Whistler returns. 
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. All right, next up from 1949, A Brief Pause for Murder. This one gets a bit meta as a radio announcer enlists the aid of an ex-con radio engineer in the murder of his wife. This script was previously used on The Whistler in 1946. And now stay tuned for the program that has rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. The Signal Oil program, The Whistler. famous go-farther gasoline invites you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by the Whistler. For extra driving pleasure, the signal to look for is the yellow and black circle sign that identifies signal service stations from Canada to Mexico. And for Sunday evening listening pleasure, the signal to listen for is this whistle that identifies the signal oil program, the Whistler. Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now the Whistler's strange story, Brief Pause for Murder. He couldn't recall the exact moment when it ceased to be a thrill to beam brightly at a microphone and announce, This is Roger Wixon speaking, and inviting you to tune in next week at this same time. He was sure now, though, that the glamour and magic of radio had gone out of his life the moment he'd married Tisha. Yes, and she'd taken a lot of other things out of his life, too. Things like pride and confidence and self-respect. And Roger couldn't recall either the precise instant he decided to kill Tisha, when the helpless, frustrated hate for her blotted out any pangs of conscience, left him frankly admitting to himself that all he wanted were the moment and the means. Of course, there was no plan in his mind on the night of the dance at the country club. No plan, just a decision. He'd come home first, after leaving her there with Trent Crandall, and it sat alone in the living room, patiently waiting for her. It was after two, and the door opened, and she called back to Trent. Good night, Trent, darling. Thanks for the buggy ride. Oh, Roger, you waited up for me. How sweet of you. Not at all. I was just catching up on my reading here. Trent's new book. He'd be so flattered, darling. I had to fall back on something simple. I started on the Rover Boys, but I got stuck on the big words. (laughs) That's why you waited up, isn't it? You thought up a clever remark all by yourself, and you wanted me to hear it. I only want to tell you, Tisha, that I think you're being very stupid. 
You mean about Trent? Right. It makes no difference to me if you want to play footy with San Francisco's most distinguished visitor. But our fellow citizens have a way of talking, you know. If you're implying the Trent... I'm not implying anything. Why don't you join us some evening? Play chaperone. Trent Crandall is a celebrity, Tisha. Whatever he does is news. If it got back to his wife, she might possibly misinterpret. She just might assume there was more to your association with Trent than a healthy interest in his books. There is. I love him. And it doesn't concern Mrs. Crandall at the moment she's on her way to Reno. I see. And, of course, it uh, doesn't concern me either. It shouldn't. When his divorce is granted, I'll be leaving you, naturally. There it is again. What? Facial expression number 2A, the inscrutable smile. You were wearing it at the club tonight. I rather expected to see the other one. Patient suffering, I believe it's called. Good night, Tisha. You're glad I'm leaving, aren't you? That's why you smiled. Maybe. Of course, you'll have to get along without my money. I said good night, Tisha. Just good night? No recriminations? You know, I couldn't sleep a wink if I thought you were brooding over something. Why, of course not. You were brilliant tonight, Tisha. I enjoy being sneered at in front of a room full of people. Oh, and it was an inspiration you're calling my boss the program director of a peanut whistle. Mr. Gladney is an incompetent, offensive, stuffed shirt. Why shouldn't I tell him so, even if he is your boss? Very well, Tisha. Is that all? That's all. All right, darling. This is Mrs. Roger Wixon bidding you good night. So Tisha leaves and you sit alone in the living room thinking. You've discovered a very important thing, haven't you, Roger? The reason you'd given yourself for wanting to kill her is gone. She's going to leave you of her own accord and marry Trent Crandall. But it doesn't seem to make any difference, does it? Nothing matters, not even her money. You're going to kill her because you hate her. That's all the reason you need. But how, Roger? How? The next morning, shortly after you arrive at the station, you run into another announcer Hi, in the corridor. Jerry. How was the thing at the club? Oh, all right. I hated to miss it. That's funny. I thought I saw you there. You probably heard me. I had the dance remote last night from the Cedars. Oh, yeah, that's right. I heard you. We tuned in over at the club. Very simple. On the air from the Cedars, can't be at the club. At the club, can't be on the air from the Cedars. Conclusion, Jerry wasn't there. Guy can't be in two places at the same time. Get it? Yeah. Yeah, Jerry. I get it. Again this week, you Whistler fans have sent in some really choice limericks. So once again, Signal has asked me to skip the regular commercial in order to present $20 Signal gasoline books to three of you as tokens of our appreciation. The first one tonight goes to Serian Bessinger of Santa Monica, California for this limerick. There once was a man named Ben Bow whose gas tank would always run low. Now he saves that bother, and likewise goes farther. With signal, Ben Bow now saves dough. Signal, signal, signal gasoline. Your car is 
Tonight's second $20 signal gasoline book goes to L.F. Washburn of San Diego, California for this limerick. There once was a driver named Schuster who's getting more miles than he used to. Since signal he's tried, his car is his pride, and Schuster's a signal gas booster. Signal, signal, signal gasoline. Tonight's third $20 signal gasoline book goes to Mrs. James T. Blackestone of Laverne, California for this limerick. There once was a trusty old steed who drank signal gas with his feed. They thought it would kill him, but instead it did fill him with pep and astonishing speed. Signal, signal, signal gasoline. Your car will go Well, that's all we have time for tonight, friends. But our thanks to all of you who sent in limericks. Listen for more Lucky Limericks next Sunday. It doesn't matter that Tisha plans to leave you, does it? The decision to kill her has been part of you for so long that nothing she does will ever change it. So you don't think of the why of it anymore, just the how, and part of the how took shape in your mind when Jerry Edwards explained that it was impossible for him to be both on the air from the Cedars and at the country club at the same time. Something to think about, isn't it, Roger? And that evening, as you're doing your news broadcast... You find something else to think about. And so it seems Halfway through the show, someone hands you a late bulletin with a local the housing problem. Uh, oh, uh, here's a late bulletin. Police in this city went on 24-hour duty tonight, launching an all-out effort to capture the so-called whipcord strangler who claimed his third victim last night. The crime followed the grimly familiar pattern. Mrs. Dorothea Eckler was found dead in her apartment early this morning. Medical reports indicate death had been caused by strangulation with a cord or thong. As in other cases, the apartment had been looted. Police warned residents to take special precautions. You hope your listeners will attribute that catch in your voice to revulsion at the horrible crime. But it's something quite different, isn't it, Roger? Another part of the how. You've decided now that Tisha will die in a way that will point to the whipcord strangler as the only suspect at the very moment that you are broadcasting from the studio. It'll have to be a recording, of course. So there's another big problem. How can you get one of the station engineers to play a recording of your voice at the right time and to keep his mouth shut no matter what happens? That stops you, doesn't it, Roger? For three more days, it stops you. Then fate steps in again. Mr. Gladney, the program director, stops you in the hall and calls you over to meet a new employee. Well, you meet our new engineer, Wixon, Vern Collins. Hello. How do you do? Be working with you on the night shift. Say, I've seen you somewhere before, haven't I? Why, I... I don't think so. Your name is Cummings? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cummings. Well, I've got to run along. Explain the setup to Cummings, will you, Wixon? Oh, you bet, Mr. Gladney. You know, I'd swear I've seen you somewhere before. <laughs> Must have been a couple of other guys. Uh, haven't you got a station break coming up? Oh, yeah, yeah. L- let's do it.
As you give the station's call letters and the time signal, you watch the new engineer through the glass of the control room. Try to imagine what he'd look like without the mustache, with a face a little less drawn. And then something clicks. You do know him. Six years ago at another small radio station in the Midwest. You cut off your mic and the smooth voice of the network announcer booms from a loudspeaker over your head, introducing a program of dinner music. When you re-enter the control room, Cummings is showing elaborate interest in the dials on the instrument panel before him. Say, uh, Cummings. Yeah. I, uh, I'm sure we've met before. I don't know. There are lots of faces like mine. Not exactly like it. What's that? You uh, just might be a guy I used to know back in Kansas City. Worked at the same station. Look, I tell you, you're wrong. Why don't you let it go at that? Uh, cut the speaker, will you? I can't hear myself think. What? Cut it down. Ah, that's better. Look, uh, Wixen, I'm new here and I don't want to be rude, but I've got to study this panel layout. Now, do you mind? Oh, sure, sure. I'm sorry, Cummings. I didn't mean to bother you, but you look just like a guy I used to work with in Kansas City six years ago. Only his name was, uh, Spore. Vern Spore. My name's right up there on my license. You see right up there? Why don't uh-huh. you take a look? Hmm. Vern Cummings. Vern Spore. You know, you and this guy could have been brothers. Well, okay, I uh, guess I'll write to the boys back at the station in Kansas City and ask if they know what became of... Uh... Wixen. Huh? Well, wait a minute, huh? Okay, Wixen, you win. I'd like to talk to you. Well, sure. Look, uh, you were always a pretty good guy. How about forgetting you ever knew me, huh? Well, I don't see why not. After all, it's your business. You uh, probably heard about that jam I got into. It was after you left. What happened? Well, I uh, I needed some dough, and there was some beat-up equipment around the station. I figured the stuff would be good for a few bucks, and I uh, made a deal with the guy. We got caught. Well, that was tough. You're in the clink. I had to change my name when I got out. Uh... What about the license? A friend of mine fixed it up. I see. You, uh, won't say anything. Why should I? Thanks, Wixen. Gosh, when you walked in tonight, I thought I'd die. If Gladney ever found out about oh, my sure, record... Oh, sure, sure. Listen, if there's anything I can ever oh, do sure, for you... sure, Vern. Don't worry. I'll call on you. So that's all there is to the how, isn't it, Roger? Cummings is your man. He'll play ball any time you ask him. All that remains now is when. The answer to that comes unexpectedly the next evening when Lieutenant Krasner of the police department comes into the station to ask a favor. Mind if I interrupt you for a minute, Mr. Whitson? Oh, hello, Lieutenant. Not at all. Come on in. Thanks. Just been talking to Mr. Gladney. He suggested I see you about some announcements on the police benefit next week. Thought maybe you'd do them for us. Why, sure. Be glad to. Uh, when do you want them to start? Tonight, if you can. Let's see. Uh, I've got them right here. Tonight, huh? It's pretty short notice. The schedule's pretty full. Yeah, here they are. Here, I know we're throwing you a curve, but as you probably see by the papers, we've been a little busy these days. Oh, you mean uh, 
The Strangler? Yeah, it's been pretty rough. Pretty rough guy. You're not telling us anything. Oh, uh, your wife home alone while you're working here? Yes. Tell her to keep the windows locked. That's the way the guy gets in. You mean you think Nobody that... knows where he'll strike next. And it doesn't pay to take chances. Uh, got any leads? A few. I got a hunch or two. I think we'll get him. I'd hope so. Yeah. Uh, what about the announcement? Oh, uh, let me check the schedule. Uh, yeah. Oh, here. Here we are. Hmm. First time we can give you is the station break at uh, 10 tomorrow night. Is that soon enough? Yeah, I guess it'll have to be. You'll do it yourself? Yes, it'll be on my ship. Thanks a lot, Wixon. I'll tell the boys at headquarters. We'll be listening. And that does it, Roger. The when is complete, too. Police Lieutenant Krasner is going to hear you read that announcement tomorrow night at 10 o'clock along with his friends down at headquarters. And who could ask for a better alibi than that? Late that night, when you and Vern Cummings are alone at the station, you walk to the control room. He's turned off the annoying loudspeaker as usual when the boss isn't around, and he glances occasionally at the dancing needle on the volume indicator to assure himself that the network program is going out to the listeners. Uh, how'd I sound on the 9 o'clock news, Vern? Okay, why? Well, uh, do you notice anything different in my voice? Why? Uh, uh, be frank, I, I tried to give it something special tonight. Uh, how'd it sound? Well, like I said, I thought it was good. Uh, what's cooking? Uh, look, uh, can you keep something under your hat? Try me. Well, uh, I'd hate to have the old man find out, but I got a chance to go to Hollywood. Go to Hollywood? Yeah. A friend of mine with an agency down there thinks he could use me. Well, I'll make more dough on one broadcast than I make in a week here. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's just great. You're going big time, huh? Oh, well, it's not definite yet. That's why I don't want anything uh, said about it around here or anybody around here to know. Yeah. You, you're the only one I've told. I uh, just got a wire from the guy. He's flying in from the east tomorrow night. Only be in town for a few hours. If I didn't have to work, I could drive out to the airport and talk to him, but... Well, I gotta work. Well, why not trade shifts tomorrow night with one of the other boys? Well, I'd have to say why, and I don't want anyone else to get wind of it. Oh. Uh, want the guy come up here, drive in from the airport? Oh, you don't ask guys like that to drive in from airports. No, I guess I'm sunk. After all, you can't be in two places at once. Uh. It's, uh, pretty important you meet this guy, huh? Oh, sure. Might be big time. And... Oh, forget it. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What time's he get in? Well, his plane arrives at 9.55. 9.55? Mm-hmm. Let's see. 9.45, we got a band on the net from Hollywood. 10, we take Murder Manor from New York. Yeah, but there's a station break at 10 and that police announcement and the time signal. I'm sunk because i got to be in front of the mic for 30 seconds. What are you talking about? Let's record it. Huh? Sure, we can do it tonight, right here in the studio. You give the call letters, the time signal, your announcement. I'll play the record for you tomorrow night at 10. It means that you can leave here at 9.45 and you won't have to be back until the 10.30 break. It gives you 45 minutes. What, do you think it'd work? Well, why not? Yeah, but suppose Gladney finds out I left the station. I'd get king. How's he going to find out? We'll be alone here. And after I play the record, I'll destroy it. Fern, you're a genius. There's your mic, my boy. Uh, okay, you all set? Yeah, we're just about ready. Yeah. I'll go and I'll cue you from the booth. Right. <coughs> Froggy. 
This is KTUX. It's 20 seconds before 10 p.m. Friends, here's a chance for you to show your appreciation. Uh, Raj. Huh? Uh, hold it a minute, will you? What's the matter? Look, I just got an idea. Why don't you start over and purposely make a mistake and then correct it? Make a mistake? Why? Well, it's simple. You give the wrong time and then correct yourself, it'll sound more like eh, than ever that you were actually here in the studio, you see? Nobody had ever dreamed it was a record. <laughs> That's a good idea. Okay, let's try it. All right, watch me for cue now. This is KTUX. 20 seconds before 9 p.m. A correction, 10 p.m. Friends, here's a chance for you to show your appreciation for the men who protect your homes and your loved ones 24 hours a day, year in. It's done, isn't it, Roger? The record is made, ready to go. And you know you can count on Vern Cummings to come through for you. The next day is the big one, but you manage to go through your normal routine at home during the morning and early afternoon. As usual, you don't say much to Tisha, only enough to discover that since Trent Crandall has left for Hollywood, she'll be home all evening, alone. 9.30 that night at the station, you call Lieutenant I uh, just thought I'd remind you, Lieutenant, your announcement goes on in half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it'll do the job all right. At 9.45, you give the station call letters and start out of the studio. Okay, I'll see you before 10.30, Vern. Okay, Raj. And don't forget to bust that record if the old man ever found out... Don't worry about it. I'll carry the secret to my grave. You're careful to take the back streets home, keeping well within the speed limit. There's only one person in the world who'll know you're going to be in two places at the same time tonight. And you know Vern Cummings won't talk, no matter what he suspects. It wouldn't be healthy for a man with a prison record to expose himself to suspicion as a possible accomplice. Ten minutes later, you've left your car in an alley and walk up to the back door of your apartment. You reach into your coat pocket. Yes. The leather thong is still there. Oh! Oh! Oh, it's it's you, Roger. Hello, Tisha. What are you doing home so early? You scared me to death. I just thought I'd drop by and see how you were doing. You know, I've often wondered if you miss me, Tisha, during these long, lonely evenings. Answer my question, Roger. Why aren't you at the station? Is, is something wrong? Nothing's wrong. I just got tired, so I came home. What are you talking about? Tired, Tisha. Tired of station breaks and tired of you, Tisha. I'm tired of the farce you've made out of our marriage, if you can call it a marriage. Roger... What do you mean? It wasn't really marriage, was it, Tisha? It was only a means for you, a way you could ease that frustrated black heart of yours when Trent Crandall married somebody else, right under your nose. Why are you looking at me like that? Yes, Tisha, I'm tired of humiliation, of ridicule, of being used for a doormat, playing the clown for that crowd of stupid sophisticates. Roger! Roger, well, what are you going to do? Can't you guess, Tisha? Can't you make one small guess, darling? 
If you've done any mountain driving during the recent warm spell, you've no doubt seen a lot of cars that had overheated and were stopped to cool off. When this happens, most drivers worry principally about the water that has boiled out of their radiators. What they should worry about is the oil in their expensive engines. The reason. Many motor oils break down under extreme heat and form harmful gum, varnish, and carbon. Fortunately, however, this type of damage is something you won't ever have to worry about if your motor is protected by Signal Premium Compounded Motor Oil. That's because in addition to its 100% pure paraffin base, Signal Premium is fortified with scientific compounds that do important things for your motor, which oil alone cannot do. For instance, the oxidation inhibitor in Signal Premium Compounded Motor Oil specifically prevents the formation of gum and varnish. The detergent compound actually removes harmful carbon. And the viscosity index protector preserves Signal's premium's rich body even when the temperature goes up, up, up. In other words, Signal Premium does a lot more than just lubricate. So if you want to keep repairs down and performance up, remember to make your next oil change a change to Signal Premium compounded motor oil. Remember where to get it at Signal Service Stations. Well, Roger, it's over now, isn't it? Tisha is dead and you're free. With half an hour to get back to the station. You leave her there on the floor, put on a pair of gloves and move quickly about the apartment, dumping the contents of drawers all over the room, then into the bedroom where you open the window. Yes, Roger, it must look like a typical whipcord strangler crime with robbery the obvious motive. The dance music coming over the radio covers any noise that you might make. But then suddenly the music stops. You hear the announcer interrupt and begin reading Radio a bulletin. Radio flash from the police department. A suspect arrested early this afternoon has confessed to the whipcord stranglings of three women in this city during the past month. What? Nearly half no. the loot stolen from his victims. No, it can't be. With this dangerous criminal... A wave of fear sweeps over you, Roger. Quickly, you turn the radio down. This is something you hadn't counted on. One of your alibis is gone. The fall guy is in custody. You stare at the littered room, wondering if you have time to restore the place to order. No. No, there's no time for that. The other alibi. That's the one you'll have to depend on now. You rush back to the radio. It's just ten o'clock. If Vern Cummings hasn't bungled, you've still got a chance. Your hand is shaking so violently you can hardly turn the dial of the station frequency and then... This is KTUS. 20 seconds before 9 p.m. Correction, 10 p.m. Friends, here's a chance... As your own voice comes over the speaker, you begin to relax. Lieutenant Krasner, at least a dozen other police officers are listening to it down at headquarters. It doesn't matter how Tisha died or who did it. The fact remains, a man can't be at two places at the same time. and orphans of the brave men who live in your service and die for your protection. For your protection... For your protection, for your protection, for your protection, for your protection.
Let that whistle be your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Remember, if you would like the fun of having your friends hear a limerick of yours on The Whistler, the address to which to send it is Signal Oil Company, Los Angeles 55, California. All limericks become the property of Signal Oil Company. Those selected for use on The Whistler will be chosen by our advertising representatives on the basis of humor, suitability, and originality. So, of course, they must be your own composition. Featured in tonight's story were Frank Nelson, Mary Lansing, and William Conrad. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen, directed by Sterling Tracy. With tonight's story by Lou Houston and William Foreman. Music by Wilbur Hatch. And was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Remember, at this same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. All right, I hope you've enjoyed these so far. The last is the final story of The Whistler, which again is a retelling from an earlier episode, with a few changes. This one aired in September of 1955. A man two-timing his wealthy wife arranges an accident for her best friend who knows his secret in Design for Murder. I'm the whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Tonight, it's the whistler's strange story, designed for murder. The trio in the railroad station cocktail lounge seemed typical of many groups awaiting the departures of their train. They were Charles Gilbert, his wife Edna, and her close friend, Myrene Walker, who chatted ceaselessly, voicing her envy at not being able to join Edna on the trip. Myrene loved trains, loved desert vacation resorts. In fact, she seemed to love everything. Charles, on the other hand, seemed lost in thought or patient resignation until... I wish you weren't so anxious to have me out of town, Charles. Well, now, what do you mean by that? Well, you seem very insistent. And at a time when the business needs me so. <laughs> How do you like that, Myrene? She doesn't want to go. Thinks the jewelry business will go to pot. Thinks her husband planned a rendezvous with another woman. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> drink your drink, Edna. You too, Charles. 
think we'll all feel better. I'd feel better if I knew why you can't go alone, Charles. I told you I'll be busy. Also, I want you to go alone. You'll rest more. And you do need it. Look at her, Myrene, not able to keep her hands still. Doodling on the menu. And give me that pen. Oh, sorry. I'm always doodling. It's a design I was thinking of. A piece of costume jewelry. Well, stop thinking of anything like that. And since it's going to bother you, I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to be doing, dear. It was to be a surprise. A surprise? Mm-hmm. We talked about a beach house, remember? On Lido Isle? I remember talking about it. Well, I bought one. A beautiful place. I'm having it all remodeled inside. I have to be there. Charles, you didn't. I did. <laughs> oh, don't be too grateful because, uh, well, it's mostly your money. Well, I don't care as a thought. Charles, I feel much better about the trip now. You do? Well, then give me your handkerchief. Look at it, Myrene. What? Torn to shreds by Edna. When she's not doodling, she's tearing up her handkerchief. She's got to be doing something every minute. And she wonders why I want her to rest. My dear, you're going to relax or I'll know the reason why. I'm sorry. Finally, she leaves on the train, doesn't she, Charles? And you're free. You see Myrene to a cab. Hurry back to the cocktail lounge. Go directly to a corner booth. And slip in beside someone who's been waiting for you. Not too patiently. I'm sorry, Helen. Oh, darling, I am too. Sorry that we have to practice this, this deception. Uh, Kiss me. Oh, dear, we really shouldn't be here. I... Mm-hmm. Here, I ordered you a drink. Uh, I can use that. Well, at least we'll have some time together. Uninterrupted. You're sure Edna will stay away for a while? Mm-hmm. She's gone for a month. It wasn't fun watching you kiss her goodbye. Oh, I know. Well, someday. I hope it's soon, Charlie. Look, I'll pick you up tomorrow. We'll drive down to the place and lead a while. Oh, you'll love it. <laughs> I, um, I've been using quite a few of your ideas in redecorating the place. It sounds wonderful. It is. <laughs> well, come on. I'll drive you home. <laughs> She's an exciting girl, isn't she, Charles? You have difficulty getting around to saying goodnight to Helen. And only the thought of seeing her again the next day finally makes it possible. It's quite late when you arrive back home and let yourself into the house. You're scarcely inside when... That's odd. What could that be? Myrene. Yes, little Myrene. I'd like to come in, Charles. I want to talk to you. Why, of course. I'll come straight to the point. It wasn't a very pretty sight, Charles, seeing you kiss that girl right after bidding Edna goodbye. Oh, why... Uh... Go on. Make it good. Oh, you wouldn't say anything to her about this, would you? That depends on you. I don't suppose you've made any dates for the future with her? Oh, certainly not. Hmm. You know, Charles, you weren't kidding when you made that remark about Edna's money. You've had it pretty easy since becoming her business manager. And now her husband... Myrene, this girl means nothing. I swear it. I won't see her again. Look, in a few days, you and Arthur drop down to the place at Lita Wilde. 
You'll see all that I'm doing for Edna. I'll take you around the place. We can relax, go for a swim. I don't and... swim, Charles. And when my best friend's husband starts two-timing her, I don't feel like relaxing either. Irene, I've told you. I'm I've not... heard you. And I've told you, Charles. You stay away from that girl. In just 30 seconds, the whistler will continue tonight's story. Don't be half right. Use USAFI. For example, how many amendments in our United States Constitution make up the Bill of Rights? Would you say five? No, that's only half right. Brush up on your American government. Tell your I and E officer you want to study with the United States Armed Forces Institute, USAFI. It's easy. It's simple. If you don't want to be half right, Use Yusafi. And now, back to the whistler. It's going badly, isn't it, Charles? Myrene knows about your girlfriend, Helen. She knows that it was more than husbandly concern that prompted you to encourage your wife, Edna, to leave town on a vacation. A rest cure for her nervousness. Myrene has always been Edna's best friend. And she'll tell her the truth if you don't do something to reassure her that you don't intend to see Helen again. You wish you could contact Helen, prevent her from keeping her date with you the following day at the house on Lido Isle. And you're terribly nervous all the time she's there with you. What is it, Charlie? You haven't heard anything I've said. Oh, yes, I have, Helen. It's just... Uh, well, I, I'm a little jumpy. Well, I thought with your wife out of town... Helen, we've got to talk about that. It, um... Uh, it isn't as perfect as it seems. Oh? A friend of Edna's, Myrene Walker, she knows about us. Knows what about us? Well, not everything, of course. Uh, she thinks it's a casual thing that we're all friends, happen to run into one another. But... But if she continues to see us together... That's right. She'll go to Edna. Now, Helen, we, um... We've got to forget about it for a while. Forget about it? Well, you know I don't mean that exactly. I guess not. You promised me you were going to talk to Edna... Ask for a divorce. I know, and I intend to, but it can't be right away, Helen. I have my reasons. Right now, it's important that you leave, that we're not seen together. Well, all right, Charlie. I won't need a second invitation. Well, now, wait a I've minute. I've waited I... long enough as it is. Quite long enough. Goodbye. But, Helen, I... Goodbye, Charlie. <laughs> She's gone, isn't she, Charles? And only a few moments later, you hear her car start up and roar away. And you're alone. Alone in the house that you were supposed to be remodeling for your wife, Edna. And as the hours of the afternoon drag by into the night, you find yourself hating the place. And you'll always hate it. Unless somehow, soon, the house can be yours and Helen. Just how you're going to bring that about isn't quite clear to you yet, is it? 
how you'll uh, get rid of your wife, Edna. It's on your mind all the next day. And that evening as you sit alone at the beach home, you're still thinking about it. When suddenly you're aware of a noise outside. Well, well. This is a surprise. Uh, hello, Charles. Snooping around, will you? Oh, all right. Call it that if you want. <laughs> You're wasting your time, really. I'm quite alone. Are you? Of course. Come on in, Myrene. I'd like to show you around the place. Like a child caught at the cookie jar, Myrene follows you inside. She's nervous, ill at ease. Avoid your gaze as you show her about the house. And then finally, the two of you end up at the boat land. Well, what do you think of it, Myrene? Well, it's very nice, Charles. You think Edna will like it? No, I don't. This isn't the sort of house Edna would like at all. It just doesn't suit her personality, let's say. Really? I'm sure there isn't a thing here that would interest her. Outside of that unusual painting in the living room. Now, that's rather nice, isn't it? Uh, impressionistic, I believe they call that sort of thing. Well, to me, it looked almost like a dragon about to devour something. Well, Edna likes offbeat things like that. I bought it especially for her. A surprise. Oh, really, Charles? Just what does that mean? May I be blunt? Oh, please, feel free. You didn't buy this house for Edna. When does Helen move in? Now, see here, Myrene. You see here. It's a glamorous place, Charles. Exciting. To just match her baby blue eyes. Myrene, you're going You're to... not fooling me for one minute. You won't fool Edna either. She's going to know all about this. You're not going to tell her about Helen. Edna's my best friend. Myrene, I think I've had just about enough of your meddling. Sir Charles, wait. Just about enough. You stay away from me. I ought to wring your neck, you little snoop. No, Charles. Just Charles! Uh... As she turns and starts to run, Myrene trips. You reach out to grab her, but you're too late. And she plunges off the end of the boat land. Charles! Help me! Help me! I can't swim! Charles! You stand there, staring down at her, struggling in the water. She can't swim, Charles. She'll drown if you don't help her. And you don't help her, do you, Charles? Two hours later, you're back in your house in town, where you await the inevitable call. Hello? Mr. Gilbert? Yes? Uh, this is Frank Stanley, over on East Shore, one of your neighbors. Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Stanley. Good morning. Uh, Would have called you sooner, except I had the devil's own time getting hold of your phone number uh, up there in town. Oh, what is it? Something wrong? Uh, well, yeah, a woman drowned off the island last night. What's that? Yeah, fished her out of the water a couple hours ago. Tom Jenkins, you know, he runs a gas station, said this woman asked directions to your place last night. To my place? I thought you'd probably know her. Police found a purse on your boat landing. Identified her as Myrene Walker. Myrene? Good Lord, Myrene. Uh, you do know her? Uh, yes. Yes, she's a very dear friend of my wife. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Gilbert. Oh, 
This probably wouldn't have happened if I'd been out there last night. I, I'd planned to, but business kept me here in town. Myrie must have come out to visit us, wandered around in the dark. Yeah, that's the way I figured, too. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for calling, Mr. Stanley. I'll get in touch with my wife right away. You smile, don't you, Charles, as you hang up the receiver. It's all over now. Myrene is dead. You could have saved her, but you didn't. You couldn't have her telling your wife about Helen, could you? Later that day, you send a wire to Edna at the resort. Inform her that you have some bad news. Ask her to return immediately. And that evening, you're back at the house on Lido Isle. As you hurry up the path, you're startled to see a light burning in the living room. Helen. Yes. He's probably paid you a surprise visit. Good evening, Charles. Uh, Edna. I found the key under the mat, so I came on in. I've been waiting hours for you. But, uh, I don't understand. I sent the telegram only a few hours ago. Telegram? You must have missed me. I left the resort this morning. But, but why? Here. Perhaps this will explain. A letter? Myrene sent it to me. Myrene? Yes, Myrene. She told me all about your little... friend, Helen. Oh, now, Edna, surely you don't believe Myrene it. Myrene wouldn't lie. But, Edna, listen, you I... You didn't bother to deny it, Charles. But you've got to let me explain. Let's drop the matter here and now. You see, Charles, I've thought it over very carefully. I've decided to forgive you. Forgive me? Yes. I'm really much more to blame for Helen than you are. Uh, I don't understand. Perhaps I drove you to her. I haven't been a very good wife, Charles. More than a little neglectful. Thinking too much about business and not enough about us. Our home. Our marriage. Well, we haven't been as close in the past few years as we used to be, have I know, I know. It's my fault. I'm willing to forget all this, Charles. But of course, you must forget Helen. Oh, of course. Fix me a drink, will you? I could use one. All right. <laughs> I could use one myself. Charles. Yes? You said something about a telegram. Oh. Yes. Yes. Well? Bad news, I'm afraid. It's about Myrene. What's happened? Well, apparently she came out here last night while I was in town. While she was wandering around outside in the dark, she... She fell off the boat landing. She... What? She drowned, Edna. The police recovered her body this morning. Myrene... Drowned? Easy now, darling. Oh, it's a terrible shock, I know. Here, this will help. Oh, Charles. Charles, the poor dear. Oh, if I'd been here, I don't suppose it would have happened. At least the lights at the boat landing would have been on, and... Wait a moment. You said you were in town. Yes, at the house all evening. But you weren't. What? You weren't at the house in town. I know, because I called you from the resort half a dozen times. There was no answer. But I tell you, Edna, Where I were you last night? Charles, where were you when Myrene had her... 
accident. Answer me. <laughs> Listen, Edna, you I was... You were sure when came. She knew about Helen and you were afraid she'd tell me. You didn't know she'd already sent me this letter, did you? Did you? All right. All right, so I was here. And Myrene's death wasn't so accidental, was it? Wait a minute. Where are you going? To the sheriff's office. Edna, listen. Let go of me, child. I didn't have a thing to do with Myrene's death. You've got to believe me. It was an accident. Well, let the police decide that. No. Let go, I said. No, Edna. You're not going to the police. Charles. Charles. Don't look at me like that. What? You. Edna. She's fainted, hasn't she, Charles? And looking down at Edna, lying unconscious before you, a thought suddenly occurs to you. It's a way out, isn't it? A way out for you and Helen. Quickly, you pick up the folded sheet of paper, the letter Myrene wrote to Edna, and stuff it into your pocket. Then you carry Edna outside, place her in the car as she drove down, drive it into the garage, close the garage doors, leaving the motor running. And wait. Later that same night, you drive Edna's body back to town in her car. Put it in the garage. Again, leave the motor running as you close the garage doors. Sorry, Edna. So long. All of us are proud of our hometowns, and rightly so. In this brief moment before we continue with our program, we'd like to offer a salute to one of our hometowns in America, Indianapolis, Indiana. Capital of the state and a great transportation center, Indianapolis' extensive trade is based on the rich territory which surrounds it. Large coal fields, tremendous deposits of building stone, and one of the richest sections of corn and wheat in the world. But perhaps one of the best-known features of the city to the world at large is the Indianapolis Speedway. It was built in 1909 as a proving ground for automobiles, and each Memorial Day, the famous 500-mile race is held there. From the experience gained in this annual event have come many improvements in automobiles. Every time you used your rear-vision mirror, every time you filled your tank with ethyl gasoline, every time you appreciated the comfort of your improved tires, you were giving credit to something that was first used on that speedway. Indianapolis has its famous citizens, too. Benjamin Harrison, the 23rd president of the United States, called it his hometown. So did James Whitcomb Riley, the great Hoosier poet. And it was the birthplace of General Walter Beadle Smith, chief of staff of the American forces in Europe during World War II. Nearly half a million people live in Indianapolis today, and they're proud of the part their hometown has played in the building of America. And now, back to The Whistler. You've carried it off very well, haven't you, Charles? The role of the worried husband, concerned over his wife's whereabouts, and your phone call to the police brings quick results. An hour later, the sheriff calls on you at the house on Lido Isle, quietly informs you of your wife's death, carbon monoxide in the garage of your home in town. You continue to play the part now of the grief-stricken husband, and inwardly you're pleased certain your performance has more than convinced the sheriff. And then... Uh, Mr. Gilbert, 
You said you were alone down here last night. Yes, that's right. I I waited all night for my wife to show up. You sure she didn't? No, of course not. She's never set foot in this house. I bought it only a few days ago, shortly before she went on her vacation. I see. Why, why, why did you ask me that? I was just looking at the painting of that dragon. Impressionistic stuff, isn't it? Yes, that's right. I understand your wife was always drawing. Quite a doodler. Yeah. It was just, just a nervous habit, though. I was sort of wondering about that dragon design. Looks kind of familiar. It's an original. Yeah? Sure is different. It was a present for my wife. She... She didn't even get to see it. Yeah. Maybe you better have a look at this. A letter? No letter. Just an envelope. It's addressed to your wife. From someone named Myrene Walker. We found it in your wife's coat pocket. Well, what about it? Turn it over. All right, but I don't see... Now, I'd say that drawing was the work of a nervous doodler, wouldn't you, Mr. Gilbert? And if your wife never set foot in this house, how is it the sketch on the back of that envelope is a doodler's copy of that weird dragon painting on the wall? Well, Mr. Gilbert... Featured in tonight's story were Bill Foreman as the Whistler, Lorene Tuttle, Jack Edwards, Lois Corbett, and Jack Moyles. The Whistler, directed by Gordon T. Hughes, with music by Wilbur Hatch, is written and produced by Joel Malone and transmitted overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Services. The Whistler was entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarities of names or resemblance to persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Well... I hope you enjoyed these. I'm a bit of a fan of the radio dramas, and these mysterious crime stories are ones that I love to curl up with in a darkened room late at night. If you're going to push me to give in an Oathful rating for any of them, I'm going to give them all a good solid three. Orphan Entertainment will, of course, be back next month. Lydia was kind of hinting she might like to delve into some public domain sci-fi again. I think she's still looking to wash the bad taste of UFO Target Earth out of her system. So who knows what we might come up with. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening. I hope you continue to download Orphan Entertainment. You can always do that through our new homepage at orphanentertainment.com. You can subscribe through iTunes, where you can give us a rating and leave a nice comment. And you can listen anytime, anywhere on Stitcher Radio. Feedback or suggestions? Send an email or an MP3 to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. And you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Orphan Entertainment. Again, really appreciate you guys listening. I hope you enjoyed these as much as I enjoyed bringing them to you. And we will talk to you next month. Bye, all.